Thank you so much for tuning in to the Spiro Avenue Show. You could follow us on social media at Spiro Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also watch our full episodes and clips and highlights on YouTube. And we would appreciate it if you could hit that subscribe button for us. Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Man, our long wait for grab couch is over. I'm so glad to have you, man. The, the eve of Michigan State football, and we finally got you here of all nights, man. Welcome here, finally. Thanks for having me. You showed my four coherent clips I've ever... <laughs> oh, those are the four? Yeah, that's it. Look, I, I got to say, your coverage the past week has been really, really good, and I, I'm a Couch and the Rube guy, but I've been really diving into it lately because there's so much intrigue with this particular team. I want to get to the sort of big picture preview that I think most people are looking for and expecting in a minute. But you were not creating the news, but you helped foster the creation of the news with the Smell Tucker piece. I'm sure you're somewhat aware of your resonance with this LSJ interview. And Mike Valenti did a big thing on it. It was the talk of Twitter. It was picked up in multiple outlets. You sat down with Mel Tucker. You had this discussion. What, how did that go? How did that sort of happen? Take me into the room with Mel Tucker there. Yeah, I've been trying to set up a one-on-one with him for a little while, and, uh, and it just worked out th- that particular Monday. And I think they had had – he wasn't in a great mood when it, when it started. It was in his office. Uh, you know, I think they had had a, a practice that didn't go as, as, as he wanted it. And um, so he wasn't – you know, his voice was grovelly. He sounded just beaten down by the day a little bit, late in fall camp, as, as coaches sound. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking to do a piece on heading into year four, where the program is, where he is, the team, all that. Let the conversation sort of take it where it goes. You know, I've got some things I want to get to. Um, and so we sat down and, you know, it was just sort of getting the regular stuff on the season and the team and stuff we'd heard through um, media days and press conferences. And at some point, um, you know, he mentioned – that they, you know, I'm trying to remember which came first. But it was either that they were a year behind on NIL, or um, that you know other schools were paying their guys twelve or thirteen, you know. And, and he just started dropping lines like that, which was very clear that when a coach does that, and Mel Tucker's not somebody who says things on accident, you know, he wasn't afraid to have these these things out there. Um, and and the the line that really stuck with me was the the one about the idea that. You didn't know how you could expect to be great and have championships if you weren't, to paraphrase, I don't remember exactly, be great in every, in every area and sort of referencing to the level of resources and NIL that existed, uh, especially in recruiting and, and whatnot. And that, that, that jumped at me right away. Um, but the, um, yeah, it was just a, a normal sort of, we've been trying to set something up for a while. That Monday worked uh, in his office and uh, we sat down for like half an hour. And uh, good conversation went a number of ways. Talked about the quarterbacks, other things, and but I knew when I left that that was the stuff. And I I, I didn't know, you know, what stir it would cause, but I knew that would would catch people's eye because it was stuff he had not said before, um, and that was interesting. There were two sort of divergent reactions to it, and that was I would argue by far the the biggest takeaway was that nil piece. That's what people were talking about. There's this camp that was saying. This is a call to arms. He's he's yeah. keeping it real, and he's telling you what you need to hear. And hey, you know, if you want to be with the big boys, he's telling you what we need. And then there's the divergent camp from that. That is, hey, you're making nine and a half million dollars a year. What are you bitching about? This is your job. 
you know, the Valeni thing we'll play in a second, but get up on the table and raise the money if you need it. I mean, do you have a take on that? Did you get the sense it was more a call to arms or more of him bemoaning and, and complaining about this? I think there was a little of both because I think it was, a you know, a, a letting people know there is a level you need to get to. Uh, you know, his, his tone was a little bit of there's a little bit of bemoaning in there um, because I think, you know, that. But I, I do think he's hoping people see that and understand that there's things that aren't being done that they don't have that other places do. And, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting about Mel Tucker, and I don't know that this helps him with the Michigan State job. I don't know that his other stops help him. So you think about where he's been with the Georgia, the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the LSUs. Those are places that are just different with football than Michigan State. It's different culturally as, as schools. And I think that, you know, Michigan State's never going to be what, what they are in terms of, I mean, it's just a different fan base. It cares about different things. It, it's, it's, it's a different school. And so when you come from those places and those are your experiences, um, I think you, you can run into some frustrations if, if that's what you're, trying to, what you're trying to model. Well, when he was hired here, he talked openly about national championships. And I've yeah. had players on the team, staffers from the team on the show and I always like to point out the contrast. So when Mark D'Antonio was hired in, you know, in 06, but ahead of 07, he talked about winning the Big Ten and going to the Rose Bowl. That was the talking point. I don't think he ever said the word national championship in that first year. People thought that was absurd. At, at the time, coming off John Allen, kind of seemed absurd. There's no talk of national championships. Mel, I don't know that he's mentioned much about Big Ten championships. I know certainly more of the emphasis was national championships. And I've talked to guys on the show saying, can you really compete with Georgia, Alabama? Does he really believe that? To a man, they've all said yes. I wonder if, do you sense he's had a little bit of a rude awakening where, wow, this is going to be harder than I thought because I'm coming from the Georgia, Alabama background? Yeah, I mean, I think he's learning more about the Michigan State fan base. It, you know, it, it's, it's spring games where you only have 5,000 people and it's just different, right? You, you got to know this is culturally un a cold day on April 1st or whatever it is, people don't want to be out there as, as much. They're just not not into it year-round as much. Yeah, I, I'm sure there have been a number of awakenings. Um, I, I, I still believe that, you know, like the D'Antonio, the D'Antonio era, the national championship was much more mythical at that time anyway. It was a BCS-voted thing. The Big Ten was, and the Rose Bowl was still more of a pure thing that existed, and Michigan State fans hadn't been there in a while. Like, I still wonder with the Rose Bowl in 2013 because of the, if the playoff starts a year later or a year earlier, rather there are questions whether Michigan state would have been in it. And it's a whole different dynamic, but I think there are a lot of people who would not trade that Rose Bowl experience for a national championship. Now there are a lot who would, but that was a pretty, I mean, that was all of Spartan nation descending on Pasadena. It was quite a pilgrimage out there. And it was, um, so I, I think f for Mel, um, I am sure there are some I don't, rude awakenings, but I'm sure there are some lessons he's learned. He's realized he's just learned the campus. He's learned the um, he's learned the limitations that exist to some degree. I don't know that that if he thinks he still can't do it, and I think the expanded playoff helps that tremendously because in future years, especially with the new Big Ten, winning the Big Ten is going to be a lot harder than getting to the expanded playoff. And then maybe making a run in that playoff if you've got the right kind of team in, in December and January. Um, it's a good question. I would, uh, you know, I haven't asked him that specifically. 
And uh, maybe next time, I'll we'll see if I can, you know, rile people up with that. Maybe he'll say, there's just no chance here or something like that. I mean, the, the Rainier Saban piece in the freight, but I don't know if you caught that, was one of the more scathing pieces I've read on any topic in sports in the last five years in, in town. I mean, it was it was way up there. It was brutally scathing. I don't know. Did you catch the Saban yeah, piece? Yep. So, so you know what I'm talking about. I thought it was pretty, I mean, I don't know if it was harsh. It's, you know, it's the guy's opinion and that's fine. But it was pretty scathing. And Rainier's big thing was there seems to be this conflict of you came here saying, you know, no excuses. If you, you know, can can't recruit here, you can't recruit anywhere. You know, it takes what it takes, all the Trevor Moad stuff. And now you're talking to, you know, a longtime columnist at the LSJ saying, oh, we don't have what we need here. And it's kind of there is a disconnect there. Do you think that criticism was fair? Where I disagreed with the column was this. Number one, a lot has changed in college football since he took the job. So the points on NIL, NIL wasn't a thing when Mel Tucker takes the job. So that's sort of your initial quote. So the premise, that was the issue I, I, I had with the, with the column. I also am not a big fan of holding coaches accountable for everything they say in introductory press conferences. Like It's like that is pomp and circumstance. You're trying to rally everybody up. You've just gotten the job. You don't even really know the program you've, you've taken. You've You've just flown out, you know, 24 hours earlier, leading a different team. You only know so much. You may think this is a place you can do it. You're there all those years earlier with Saban. You know the Big Ten, but you don't, you don't, you don't know what you don't know yet. And, but you're going to say all the right things. You're not going to come in and say, yeah, I really just need to learn for a year. We'll figure it out. Ask me later. So I, that, that's the, the problem with it. I, I, um, you know, it is interesting with program momentum, though, a year ago when they're coming off the 11 and two and everybody's high and, and there were some donor relationships that have been tapped into that, that, that hadn't before some things reawakened. Um, especially, you know, COVID people got separated and all that stuff. You know, it felt like there was momentum and I, and I sat down with him a year ago and I think he felt like there was momentum that was, was getting them places. Um, but they weren't recruiting with NIL yet at that point, they were a little, you know, and, and he wasn't, at that point, he was still very much skeptical of NIL and the promises being made by other schools and whether they would come to fruition and what that meant for players. And, and so I, I think the, the other thing, one thing that didn't make the story that he said is, you know, agents, players, parents, coaches, nobody knows exactly where this is going. Nobody knows the exact model that will exist. Uh, Alan Haller has said to me that he's not sure five years from now collectives exist the way they do now. And so I think that's the other hard thing. You are on a, a, a sort of a moving target. I mean, you can say this is what needs to be done today. And two years from now, that may not be the model that, that, that gets it done. I, I think what they need to do is you got to decide what you want to be, who you want to be, and then just try to be the best version of that. If they are, in fact, a year behind, let's take him at his word. Whose fault is it that they're a year behind? It's somebody's fault. Yeah. Well, if it's somebody's fault if if that's the way you want to do it. I, I think for a while that's not how they wanted to do it. So fault is to assume that this is this was always going to be the path, right? Um, and even when he said it, I don't know that I felt that he was like I didn't feel a year ago he was frustrated by that. You know, if they were a year behind, in other words, it's not like you know. So well, they were winning. That helps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And. and <laughs> So it's, I don't know whose fault it is, I, I, but I do know just from the early NIL days, they were really hell-bent on doing this the right way by the letter of the law. And that 
Um, and he, and Michigan was the same way. And, you know, other school, I mean, Ryan days made similar comments to, you know, uh, what Mel Tucker made about the amount of money. And there are a lot of places that feel a little, wait a second, this isn't what this is supposed to be. And so, I mean, I don't personally have a problem with saying that's not how we're going to operate. But if you do say that's not how we're going to operate, then you have to understand there is a consequence to that in terms of the program you might be, the type of program. Now, it doesn't mean like you could easily say, uh, you know, we are going to try to develop a strong NIL program that works with our current players, but not with not with recruits. We get them here. There's retention um, and we develop them as pros. We get enough four stars. And, you know, every couple of years we're in the thick of the playoff and we've got a chance once in a while to make a run. I think I think that you could you could make an argument. And I think people would be pretty satisfied if you did that. I think the problem right now is you've got five and seven last year. You've got people not feeling great around about the program. And I think all those things. Um, so, I mean, if they were if they would have been nine and three last year, people would listen to him and think he knows what he's doing. Now they listen to him and it's sour grapes. And I, I think that's a fair takeaway, even if it's not accurate. That's a reasonable response. Speaking of responses, reasonable or not, Mike Valenti was very fired up about the, your column and Mel's words in them. We pulled a little bit of a sampling of his reaction, which I think was a representative example of a, a large portion of the fan base. Ben, can you roll Mike Valenti for us, please? So Mel Tucker did an extensive interview with Graham Couch, okay? Lansing State Journal. And two quotes came out of this that just kind of sent me to the roof because I don't think Mel Tucker is exemplifying leadership. NIL is a big issue right now. You've got teams in the conference spending $12, 13000000 million on NIL. We're not even close to that, so it's a dogfight. Wah. I, it sent me to the roof for this reason. You can make excuses for anything if you try hard enough. I don't do that. If you're Mel Tucker and you are one of the highest paid coaches in America, I'm sorry, were you blindfolded as the tsunami of NIL came to town? So here's where I agree with them, although I don't, I'm not as mad about this as he is, and some are. It's not that big of a surprise that this thing was going to be corrupted. I thought it was inevitable that it would be corrupted, and I had Ant Wright, former Michigan basketball player on here, like five years, five or six years ago, talking about it when it was still just a possibility in the ether. And he and I both said, this is going to get corrupted in five seconds. So does he have a point there where, really, you were caught off guard by this? It seems like a fair criticism to me. Yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, Mel Tucker's supposed to be the guy who understands college football at a higher level. Right, he's the guy who's been at the programs who understand. I mean, he's said in the, in, the, in the column I wrote, I understand the players these schools are getting. I mean, he understands those cultures and 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 what's going on there. Now he hasn't recruited specifically with NIL um, at those places. I think the other thing is, you know, he's making nine and a half million, but some of that's coming from donors. And so if this is, you know, it, it's not just the optics. The optics aren't great when you're making nine and a half million. You complain about anything. It's also that. If what's really needed is those donors to be giving to NIL, if player compensation is where this is going rather than coach compensation, you know, wouldn't it be better if you're at seven million and the two and a half or whatever it is that that they're 
that you know they're paying you from donors is going to the players, right? And so part of the thing is you're taking donor money as part of your salary. And the coach itself, if, if NIL is the way we're going, is, is less important. I mean, it, 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 they just are. I mean, I, there is no need to me. There are lots of good coaches out there. There's no need if this is the path we're going down to ever pay a coach again $9.5 million unless they truly are just the magic touch. But you know, I also understand why that happened. There are a lot of the reasons why we are at this moment with Michigan State football. And it, you know, when Mel Tucker won a little bit, and I don't know how real the interest in him was, but I know the fear that they would lose him was real. And that stems from the Saban era and the what-ifs and all that sort of stuff. And you, you paid to avoid regret. NIL comes along, and you're right, it was always at some point going to be corrupted because people will do anything to see their, their teams win to some degree. And I do have questions about how much big-time donors are going to keep shelling out a lot of money year after year all around the country when there's really no return on your investment other than your team winning. I mean, it's just not – people aren't rich. And that's maybe – the player might not even be good yeah. as an individual, people, let alone the team. People aren't rich because they're stupid. And eventually it's like it, it's going to have to be much more, when they say collective, much more of a fan base effort collectively. Um, so you got that. And then you have the situation going back to D'Antonio when he left COVID and where Michigan State's program is with the recruiting classes, which creates sort of where they are as a talent base. So all that comes together and you have what you have. And what they really need right now is just – a season where people feel a little better about things. They need a year where at the end of the year, the sort of the theme is, okay, they look like they're on their way. Wh whatever it is, wins, losses. Nobody thinks they're in, be contending this year, I don't think. But at the end of the year, they look like they actually belong on the same field with Ohio State. They, you know, maybe they win it against Penn State at Ford Field. They leave November, whatever the record is, people go, okay, you can sort of see it right now and, and that more than anything they just need different vibes and that begins with just better play you said something on your show couch in the rube that i've been spinning on ever since i heard it uh about 24 hours ago i i still don't know what to make of this so i'm going to dig into it I, I was fascinated by the premise so ben let's roll graham on his show talking about michigan state deciding what they want to be and if they're facing some type of a self-identity crisis but you got to decide who you are and then be who you are. And if you want to be something else than who you are now, then the conversation that Mel Tucker's bringing up needs to be had. It involves more investment from everyone. Um, and I don't think that's who MSU is because I'm told Michigan State's a basketball school by a lot of people. Mm. And I don't believe you can be a school that cares about basketball the way Michigan State does and then do what Mel Tucker's talking about in football. And the reason for that is you have to ache for this shit. So you think this is kind of a fool's errand was my takeaway that Michigan State, this is impossible to achieve what he's achieving, right? Because if you don't have that buy-in, you don't have that aching, it's impossible to accomplish what he's saying. Is that a fair takeaway from what you said? Yeah. In the, in the, in the world where NIL is a, is a substantial part, where player compensation and how much you can bring in is, is, is a huge part of getting to that level. Um, I mean, because when you go back to the Antonio era before any of this existed, they were one recruiting class going a lot differently away from what seemed like taking that taking that step a little bit. But yeah, I, I think one of the, the challenges that Michigan State has is that you know 
in November, regardless of what's happening on the football field, the Champions Classic happens. The basketball team, there's a lot of interest this year. And there's a lot of interest a lot of years. Tom Izzo changes the vibe. Change, you know, you've got an escape. And you've got one you care about. Most of those, you know, people will say that, well, you know, other schools have good basketball programs. But, you know, they don't, they don't care about it as much. At Ohio State, they would trade anything that happens on the basketball court for another football win. I feel the same way about Michigan. There might have been a few years where things were really rolling under B-line. Maybe that's a little – but for the most part, that's the way it is at Michigan. Even when Florida's winning national championships, they still didn't care about basketball. That's not the – and and that – when you care about one thing so singularly as a fan base, then I I think it makes a difference. It's where your, it's where your priorities are. It's where your resources are. It's where your finances are going to donate. And at Michigan State, it will never be that way even though, you know – I would argue, Tom Izzo would argue, some other people that it's a football school in terms of what stirs the drink in certain ways. There's there are almost no place there's almost no place though that has the balance that Michigan State does between football and basketball fandom, and in most ways that works out tremendously. Like if I were a Michigan a Michigan State fan, should never trade that for anything. Like the idea of that is incredible. I mean, you get to turn the page every year. Most places don't get to do that. They're stuck in one thing. In this particular instance, though, in terms of having enough just singular focus on football, you, you, you're never going to have it. I don't. I, that's my opinion. Well, I mean, the argument for being able to get there, and I know it wasn't the NIL era, was you did have that, depending on which poll you look at, three consecutive top five finishes or you know, two top five and a sixth in that D'Antonio era yeah. where 2013, I'm not going to do the blame the refs thing, but let's face it, it wasn't great in South Bend. That team could have been undefeated and could have been in a national championship scenario. And that was with D'Antonio getting a bunch of two and three stars in there, like with just a little bit of a bump. And I think Michigan State's already ahead of their resource wise, even with the NIL era adjustment. Isn't that the argument for, okay, maybe even if you don't win it, you could be in the national championship game and you know lose by seven or 10 or something? Like, they, I don't, or I just, don't think that's impossible. Or just in the playoffs regularly. And if you're in there, somewhat regularly, you're going to have years where you can make the run. You're going to have the year like 2013 where all of a sudden you've got a team, you're like, hey, these guys can can play with anybody. Yeah. I, w- I would argue the 2014 team, had it been in the playoff, would have had a, would have had a shot. I mean, that was a really good team that just ran into JT Barrett on the wrong the wrong night, but in Marcus Mariota early in the year. And so, yeah, no, it, it, it can be done. The, the playoff, if you're getting to the playoff, people people will be okay. And people, I mean, fans will be okay if you're part of the if you're in the dance. People are going to be okay, and I think that's something that because we aren't in that expanded playoff era yet, and it's it's not that it's going to be easy to get there, but they would have been there in 2021. They would have made the playoff, and so that lets you know the type of season you'd have to have. I I, I think that's you know, and, and if you do it repeatedly, then can you build from that? Is there a chance to take off? I, you know, maybe that's that's the way to go. You're right because if if D'Antonio does it for two or three more years from what they did, it would have been very interesting to see what would have, you know, what what could have been sustained and where the program, how the program would have been seen. Um, because you know, as good as they were for six years, in those three years, most people don't view Michigan State as a school that could win a national championship, which is fairly absurd given that. They actually could have in two of those years, at least, maybe. And, um, but that's that's what you're you're 
you're fighting against. And you're probably fighting against that in recruiting and, and all sorts of things. Yeah, I, I'm constantly back and forth. I don't think Michigan State can ever be Alabama where they're ripping off five titles in 11 years or whatever that run was. So I'm not to that extreme where they can get there. But I'm not – they can never win a national title either because yeah. you just said why. Here's my sort of model in my head. And, Ben, can you put up the graphic for us? Clemson. Mm-hmm. Clemson, if you look at their track record, was very, as the kids say, mid these days. Yeah, Clemsoning was their thing. That was a verb, but look at, yeah. this, look at this stat. So their they're run from 1991 to 2011, you know, the record is what it is. Not that great, not bad, but they averaged 7.3 wins a year. They were constantly 7 and 5, 6 and 6, 8 and 4, 5 and 7. Their best AP finish. And that entire two-decade stretch was 16th. That's where they peaked. 13 of those 20 years, they were unranked. But their best year, 16th, I think they went 9-3 and three that year. And then you look forward 2012 to the present. The record speaks for itself. 12 wins a year. AP top 10 seven times. Two national titles, obviously. And their worst AP finish was uh, – it's not even up there, so I can't tell you. I don't know. But it's the point is they're – contrast here is staggering yeah and nobody could you said it clemson was considered this blah i mean they were nothing i grew up with clemson being kind of like you know an acc john l michigan state like where they'd be interesting one year here or there they got there where they were uh they were at bama's level at least for you know four or five years if they're not still there remains to be seen so why can't Michigan State aspire to that? Like, why can't they try to follow the Clemson model? Well, no, you're right. I mean, Clemson doesn't have the basketball, whether it's a hindrance or not. They don't have that where they care about hoops. I think one thing that makes Michigan State fans, uh, it, it bolsters the dream too, is what, what Clemson did in football to some degree. Michigan State, even over a longer period, did in basketball. So Michigan State is also one of the very few places that has experienced having a middling program and watching it rise to become nationally prominent and then do it over multiple decades. And so there is this idea that, yes, it can be done because, look, it's, it's, it's on our campus, so to speak. And so I think that is, that is another thing. And then when, when it happens in a shorter window for D'Antonio, so it happened twice at your own school. And, and so this should, yeah, yes, this school is capable of, of, of doing this. And um, yeah, I think Michigan State's absolutely capable of being a, a school that wins regularly in football and is in the in the dance in the conversation and has teams that how you get that done and what you are though you have to you have to decide and um if you know they want to try to compete for five stars the way Alabama does and the way Georgia does then that conversation needs to be had and I think that's okay I mean it's okay for Mel Tucker to be blunt about that to say you know this is the game now you know, and we've got to sort of decide if this is the way we want to do it. Um, it works if you if you spend enough. If we have the one thing Mel Tucker has going for him from talking to recruits and people in the program is there is a a realness to what they're doing when kids show up. So what they see when they come on recruiting visits is what they get when they when they show back up, and I think. I mean, maybe not all the the photos and the, the cars and everything, but generally, the, the they have a good feel for what they're walking into, which I think can help with retention, which I think is the real name of the game 
moving forward. If you can get, you know, fourth and fifth year guys who have been part of your program who are really good recruits, then you're going to have a chance to win at the highest level. And when when there's a lot of instability, a lot of places, and it's going to get harder in the Big Ten. But with 12 spots, there's going to be three Big Ten teams at least in every college football playoff starting next year. And so you just got to, you know, you you know what you have to do. You got to kind of be in that top three, four at the lowest to get in. So let's get it into this year transition to this. I, I don't think there's any way to start this other than the obvious question. The quarterback. You said in our show intro, I've heard it on your show a few times, shocked, stunned, very surprised if Noah Kim is not the guy. Is that where you are at right now as we are on the eve of the football season? Not to snap one starter, I would be very surprised. Um, doesn't mean he'll be the guy. But I, I just, and again, I could be reading it wrong, but to me, if there's not a lot of separation, and I don't think there is a ton of separation, the guy who's waited his turn and is uh, a guy you, they like a lot in a lot of ways, you put out there for, for the beginning. And I think you have a plan to play both. I would be surprised also if they didn't play both these first two weeks. I think it ultimately gets settled maybe the first two weeks, but really the two weeks after that. You're still at home. You're playing Washington and Maryland, two teams that can beat you, and you're going to need good quarterback play. And, and the thing is, we'll see it. Like I always say about quarterbacks, it's not the coach's decision. It's not a fan's decision. It, it, it happens in plain sight. You, you know who the best guy is. you know. And even if the coaches are stubborn and hang on for a while, eventually the best guy is, is clear to everyone. And, and, and so we'll find out who that is. I would be surprised if, though, Kim is not taking the first quarter snaps uh, on, on Friday night. So, I mean, maybe I guess the better question is who's the guy in week five? I mean, that's maybe the better question, right? And I don't think anybody really knows. Because, I agree, yeah. Because the, the thing is, you don't know what these guys are going to do when adversity strikes, right? I mean, I, what, what does Noah Kim do when he's under pressure for decisions? What does what Kate and Hauser – because one of the things when you listen to Mel Tucker that's really important is they're going to – the guy who makes the most mistakes is not going to be the quarterback. So you can have – all the talent in the world, but if you're if you know your guy is turnover prone, if you're somebody who tries to make too many plays and doesn't live for the next down, and so to speak, that's not the guy they want right now. Now, you know if, it, if you're such a playmaker, maybe they live with that sort of thing, and maybe there's separation that way. But I don't think we have any sense of it. And the, the history of Michigan State with quarterbacks is is amazing. I mean, the one one of the reasons I think Kate and Hauser eventually could win the job is at some point the higher the the more heralded kid is going to win one of these. It didn't happen with Keith Nickel and Kirk Cousins. You know, Damian Terry never got there. Messiah DeWeaver never never got there. Um, you know, there have been a number of guys who wound up being just were the guy that everybody wanted to see and never were the guy or just didn't have it. And, um, you know, so I, I, at some point, the, the thing that's interesting about the quarterback battle to me, though, is Sam Levitt's presence. And I think that gives you freedom not to worry about keeping Hauser happy. You know, like, I I mean, I, if Kate and Hauser winds up being the best quarterback, I think they'd be thrilled. And they'd yeah. be happy if he winds up being a, an All-American. But what you don't have to fear is like, boy, Noah Kim is the better quarterback this year. He's won this job. Is Kate and Hauser going to leave the program? What do you do? You know, boy, we, we still like his ceiling a lot. You got a kid who's just as heralded right behind him. And I think that gives you um, – you know, just not to worry about that sort of thing. I, I, I find also 
the if you're a coach trying to figure out who's better now versus who could be better at the end of the year if they get to start. Like one of the problems with Peyton Thorne's um, situation and his frustration with having other guys, I think, having the open competition. Well, part of it was how it was communicated to him. I think that could have been done a little bit better. But just because you've started 26 games and at times played okay, you haven't played well enough not to be challenged. And are you better than those other guys because you have 26 starts? Or are you actually better than those guys? And I think that's also a um, something that as a coaching staff you have to look at. If Kate and How- if, if you look at Kate and Hauser right now and, and you think all he needs is snaps to be a dynamic player, then you've got to factor that into everything as well. You didn't have any issue with the Peyton Thorne decision in terms of it being a competition. It was just more of the delivery of the, the message. Yeah, I mean, I my, one of my big frustrations is is, is like bad communication it drives me nuts. And the how was it communicated that was poor? I don't honestly I don't know. It was said in a press conference before it said to Peyton Thorne because I I saw the quote from the unnamed source, which I assume was his dad, but I don't know. I was just speculating, but just you know, oh, it was news dust kind of thing. Was the yeah, and I I heard that a few. I mean. The, they basically said it in a pre-spring press conference before they said anything to Peyton. And when you've got a guy at what's your most important position and you're, um, he's been your starter for two years, been in a lot of battles for you, he's won some games for you, lost some games for you, whatever. I, I just think he's owed the respect of saying, hey, you know it's always a battle. We're going to say this. We need, you know, we, we need – people to feel that competition we still like you we still want you to be here we want you to be part of this and if we think there's a decent chance you'll win the job he probably goes into that thinking maybe not maybe he still transfers to Auburn but at least he knows where you stand I think there's something to hearing it publicly before you hear it privately and that's that's what I think was was the beginning of the frustration I don't know if he would have stayed or not though I was you know I was kind of bummed out by that whole thing because I'm like the a thorn apologist in the fan base, probably, and I get so much shit for it. And even for saying that, I'm going to get texts from my buddies being like, "Oh, you know, leave him alone, like get off him, all that stuff." I just, I think Thorn got way too much heat last year. Not saying he played perfect, but even just you know, you said a lot of battles for you. The guy's got the touchdown pass yeah. uh, record at the school, or a school that's been around for over a hundred years. So, like, can we give this guy a little respect for one? But I don't think his play was as poor last year as people made it out to be. He was scapegoated like this was all his fault or mostly his fault on that side of the ball. I don't think that's fair. No offensive line, no running game, right? And I, I mean, think that's, did I miss something? No, that's part of the reason I think they didn't put Noah Kim in, too. Is it? I mean, the other thing is, and I, I think he was actually beat up and, and, and not 100% healthy, but they looked at this is the best chance to survive with all the other variables that are going wrong. And that probably deserves some respect, too. If you, if you think... You know, I mean, I can see from his perspective, he's thinking if you think Noah Kim is ready to surpass me, when I'm banged up or when I'm not playing well and, and we don't have healthy receivers, the line's not very good, why didn't he go in, you know? And and um, and Jay Johnson said this fall that or this August that he uh, felt comfortable, would have played Noah. I, I, I just don't – I think they thought Peyton Thorne gave him the best chance to hang in there. And, yeah, and they probably should have presented it to him a little differently. That said, I mean, I, I, as Mel Tucker stated in the, in the column, I mean, they're not at a position. I thought he used the Aaron Rodgers situation where, like, everybody knows Aaron Rodgers is the New York Jets quarterback. He gets signed. This is the guy. He 
he said, you know, we're not there yet. This is, and I don't know when we will be, but that he basically was saying that enough has not been done to have that sort of thing anointed on you. And, and I also think that's, that's a hundred percent fair. So Mel Tucker has been here for two full seasons and really has not met or matched expectations in either one. 21 exceeded them by a mile. They were way better than anyone thought. 22, they were quite a bit worse. People thought maybe backslide to eight or nine wins. Nobody saw this coming. They were ranked, what, 11th at one point going into the Washington game. So we haven't really seen the, oh, you know, over-unders four and a half, they win five. They've been kind of at two opposite ends of the spectrum. What's your take this year? Do you see them as, like, would you be more surprised if they went four and eight or 10 and two? I'd be more surprised if they were 10 and two. So you you think it's very like on the board that this year gets bad? It, it it's possible. I mean, I don't think it will. Like I I pick six and six. I can see the path to seven and five. I think some of it hinges on like the Maryland and Washington games if they can get one of those. Um, but I can also see how it could how it could spiral. And there, there's just so many so many unknowns. And um, I don't know that I've covered a year quite with this many where you just go down the line like what is that going to look like and but I, I, in some ways that's you, you don't look at any position either and go they're definitely in trouble you know you don't look at i mean we don't know about the quarterbacks they may have two really good quarterbacks that may be the problem right now and sort of deciding it is they're like they had two guys who are better than Peyton Thorne right now you know who knows um it would help tremendously if Nathan Carter is the real deal i think if they have a running back because i think back to 2021 and i think back to that Play. I was sitting next to an Indianapolis Colts scout in at Northwestern and Kenneth Walker. And we had talked about a number of other things, but we had not talked about Kenneth Walker once. And he takes the ball 75 yards. And I think in that moment, everybody knew they were going to be okay. It was like, it wasn't just one run. It was like, okay, this guy is really good. They've been saying that that's, they, there was something about that run that just made you think, hmm, this is interesting. And they could use, and I know Central Michigan is probably not quite what, what Northwestern was supposed to be going into that season. Uh, they got a veteran defense or whatever. It's still a MAC opponent. But if they could have a day where you leave think, feeling really good about a player that you didn't know about, I think that would do wonders, sort of changing the vibe, starting things in the right direction beyond just beating Central Michigan, which everybody's ex- expecting they'll do. I know Colton Pouncey was the first one that I read because he was, you know, covering the beat at the time for the athletic was the first one I read talking about Kenneth Walker very early, like in spring ball, but the Kenneth Walker pieces, Charbonneau, you, Solari, you guys were all talking about him before we knew because you're up there, you're covering this team. Now, I don't know if anyone predicted exactly what happened. Walter camp player of the year, but I knew going in from Colton, your coverage, Solari, Charbonneau, this guy seems pretty good. Everyone up there is buzzing. I, maybe not to that level, but what is the buzz about Carter? Is it like this guy, oh, shit, this guy's going to be really good, similar to Walker at least, at least in nature? Yeah, I mean, that's the hard thing is Kenneth Walker sets a pretty high standard for what that, you know. And, and I, But what I do think they think they have in Carter is sort of the complete back they haven't had or they didn't have a year ago where you've got a guy, sort of the natural vision, um, fast enough strong enough to be a featured back right and that sort of um i don't know you know it, it they have not shied from being excited about him 
But I also haven't heard the sort of quotes that, like, I think it was Xavier Henderson, forgive me if I got this wrong, but somebody said uh, in spring practice, or whatever it was, you know, one of the early practices with Kenneth Walker, worry they're really bad defensively. (laughs) This guy's really good. And they just kind of knew, like, and then they started figuring out because other guys were in there. Okay, we're we're okay. We're not we're not awful. They just couldn't deal with them. I haven't heard that sort of talk. Um, but the 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 interview process is a little different. Um, a little set, setups a little different. I also haven't asked guys the same. I haven't asked that particular thing. Um, but I I think he has a chance to be decent, and that would be huge. It would be huge if Malik Carr is. This is the year he's healthy, light bulb is on. He's a a real problem for defenses as a tight end because that makes a lot of things easier, easier for the quarterbacks. Um, that there are a lot of things that you know we could get a sense of. I, I know with a game like, like Central, it's more preventing red flags in in the opener, but there are also things you could at least be intrigued by that you feel good about coming. In, and they need a few of those things to happen. Well, t- talking about things that feeling good about. I had a polarizing take this week, but I mean it. I meant, I meant what I said, and I'll, I'll double down. I'm actually really excited for the defense. I've seen Scotty Heaselton coaching guys that thought they were never even going to play at certain points, and and I still saw improvements despite how bad it was. I don't, I don't think it was his fault, and I was a student. When people wanted Pat Narduzzi's yeah. head on a stake, I mean, that was like early Graham Couch days, right? It was even before. It was like oh nine, right? It was just. Well, you were what eleven when you came in? Twelve, yeah. Okay, so they were the the defense in twelve was already better than they were better than thirteen actually statistically. In some ways, yeah. I mean, it depends which metric, but they were a little bit better than like the S and P plus. But whatever, they were great defensively. So you came in when it already turned. I was a student. I had graduated in eleven, so I was at those games oh nine. People wanted that guy gone. It was a hatred that we haven't seen for a coordinator here ever since became the best in school history, I would argue. So I'm wary of this whole fire the coordinator without looking at any mitigating circumstances. I think he's a hell of a coach. I see things that I like from him. I The red zone defense throughout the year, especially in the Michigan game, famously, I don't think he had much to work with. And I think he did a pretty good job I'm a Scotty Hazelton guy. Now, for full disclosure, I have since had his wife on, like we're friendly. Mm-hmm. But I was saying all this two years before I met her. So, I mean, in fairness, I, I want to disclose that. But I'm a Hazelton guy. Am I crazy? What am I missing here? No, I don't, I don't think you are necessarily. I, I don't like in 2021, I really liked the bend but don't break defense they did. And I think it takes a check of ego for a coordinator to play a defense that's going to give up a lot of yards and can have a cushion, but this is the way to survive because the offense is good enough. Got some guys who can create some turnovers. You can opportunistic with the sacks. I mean, I thought they played until the secondary and everybody got so beat up in November that they really couldn't compete for a couple weeks. I thought they played 2021 about as well as you could given the personnel. Um, and last year, you know, knowing – what we sort of do now about the impact of Xavier Henderson, Darius Snow, uh, you know, there were several other uh, injuries, Jacob Slade, you know, things. I mean, they had really no shot given the depth they didn't have and how key those guys were. Um, What I don't know yet about Hazleton, I mean, Hazleton's obviously 
a good enough coordinator. He's moved up. He's, he's been a defensive coordinator at the Division One level in multiple schools. Is he a guy who can, you know, make chicken sh- salad out of chicken shit, right? Because that was always my problem with Dave Warner. Because Dave Warner was a guy who, you get, give him the parts, he's fine. Fine. They averaged 43 points a game in 2014. He had all the parts. But he's not going to take a team that has the one wide out that needs to be featured and not a lot else and turn that into a successful offense. And the question with, with Hazleton still that, that it was yet to bear out and, and is can he, can he really maximize the group? I think this is an important year because I think they do have some depth and some talent and perhaps some pros in that interior defensive line that can be difference makers. And they have experience at linebacker and they've got some talent in the secondary that's young. Um, and getting that group to actually be the reason you win some games more often. And, and I, you know, the Illinois game last year, I think, was one where they were really good. And they had, yeah. you know, they're, they're, so it's not like it's never happened. Tough spot, too, like on the road. And so if you can get, you know, but if there are, you know, if they can have three or four wins this year where you look at it and you go, boy, the defense really, um, I'm not saying they have to be peak D'Antonio defense, but. They need to turn that corner, I think. So you landed on six and six. What's sort of your high end this, this goes really well? You said seven and five, eight and four, like best, best case? Yeah, I mean, the best case scenario to me, I don't think they probably win at Iowa, um, but is to win the home games before then. And I, I think they'll I, – I picked them to go two and two in those games, but, you know, and three and one probably more likely. But you know, there's a chance that they're they're winning close games against Maryland and, and, and Washington and, and – um, and then if, you, if you're in that situation and then you get Rutgers after the bye week um, before the Michigan game and, you know, the, Indiana, Nebraska, Minnesota are all, you know, you look at those rosters and they're all winnable games. It's, it, everybody talks about how brutal the schedule is. It's tough, but there are, there are some teams out there that have at least as many questions as Michigan State, teams that might be worse. And so you could see how, like to me, eight and four is sort of the, the ceiling based on, and we get stuff wrong before the year every year. Like we don't know about three or four teams we thought were going to be good. We we don't know about teams that are good or aren't that good. Every year, two SEC teams play on like the first week of the year. Both turn out to be crap, but we make one number one in the country because they won the game, right? That's sort of the way it goes. If So Penn State could not be as good. They could not have the quarterback play, whatever it could be there. But based on what I think Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State are going to be, it's hard to imagine, and, and, and then the Iowa game on the road, the first road game, and what I think is going to be a really good Iowa team, those four games are just hard to imagine them winning unless there's something to them that we don't know, and, and we don't know a lot, right? So, again, I, I could be wrong, but eight and four seems like a ceiling to me, and um, I also think enough could go wrong that, that – uh, like they need to win these first two games. They need to make sure – they're two and zero. Oh. You don't want that that vibe coming. That, out that would be bad. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that's that would be bad. That would be tough to get back, honestly. But I don't think they're going to lose. I think they're starting four and zero. Oh. I actually think they're beating Washington. West, East, East, West. How often do those teams play well? Like twice in thirty years. Oregon went to Columbus, famously yeah. without Thibodeau a few years ago, popped them, and they controlled that game. That was a stunner. They were double digit underdog. Other than that, even when Arizona State beat us. Michigan State played better than Arizona State in East Lansing that year. It was they didn't play well. Arizona State didn't do anything the whole game. So that east to west or vice versa, those teams usually don't play well. And and then if they were to beat Washington, a lot of that's going to mean the defense is good. 
Yes. Because that's going to be a game where a lot of things are going to be tested. Like, I, I think the Central Michigan game is the ideal opener. It is not just because it's, it's Central or whatever. I just think who this particular Central Michigan team is makes it the ideal opener in the sense that it's a, a veteran defense that might be the best defense in the MAC. They've got some, some, some really good, notable players there. Um, but offensively, and so you want to be tested. You want your guys to be tested, right? You don't want this offense just to steamroll somebody and you think things might be good and they're really not. Offensively, though, I think they're pretty one-dimensional. And so what it will allow the defense to do is can they control a line of scrimmage? Can they deal with quarterbacks that have mobility? Um, and can they tackle in space in the secondary and all those sort of things that you need to do to have a good year? And then you sort of, you know, by week three, you you add the passing component of a prolific quarterback in that sense, which you're going to see again in week two, or sorry, week four, four, four week three and four right away. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll learn about the pass rush, secondary, all that stuff by then. Last question, then we'll get to our speed round. You've been up to test for one, I'll say I'm way more optimistic than you about this group, but. I've been wrong every year so far with the Tucker era, so I don't know. Take it, take it from I'm also yourself. the guy who once wrote in 2018, this could be the most prolific Michigan State offense ever. Oh, and it that's, was, that's bad. It's but, a bad It's yeah. a bad preview column. On, uh, <laughs> yeah. And so, I, you know, I've been, you know, who, who knows what I know. Well, you know, I, I, I can't kill you, man. Who, like, in the Michigan State fan base doesn't have a thousand bad takes? I <laughs> joked the other day, I've gotten every single quarterback controversy, you know, battle wrong. I was all in on nickel, all in on Terry. It's like I can't get any of these things right. And, you know, here we are. We'll see. I, you know, I didn't want Connor Cook or Cousins as the guy. They both worked out pretty well. But you've been up there for this entire era covering this team in your role as a columnist, and you do do reporting. It's the nature of your work as a columnist as well. In a way that is hard to quantify, but just vibe-wise, this year versus last year, the mood, the sort of energy up there, is there a difference? Because last year was bad, if not energy-wise, just on the field. Do you see a difference in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think there's an optimism. I do think there's a, a, it's a group that's been humbled, which is probably a good thing in a lot of ways. That It's pretty hungry. Um, you know, what I don't know, and I've covered enough teams where this has gone different ways, is you get a guy like Trey Mosley who is – really good kid, smart guy, doesn't need football for his life to work out and is now sort of your leader of that group because other people are gone. Is he good enough to be a difference, difference maker or not? Like, you know, is he really, you know, do you have those? Sometimes it's like that's sort of, you know, and so the vibe is good, but is the talent there is what you don't know with some of these sort of things. The, the leadership is there, but leadership only only gets you so far at some point. You got to have a guy that causes problems on the defense, but I do think, um, yeah, I think they're healthier. To, and I think they're they're they've been humbled, which is which is always healthy in that sense. And um, I think they're I think in the building there's some hope that they're 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 pretty decent. They think we're underselling them. That's yeah. my my conversations with players. Yeah, are they are they are aware of the predictions that you know people like you or they didn't name you, but you know yeah. people like you have. Yeah. You know, they're aware of what the, the odds are out there. They've heard those things. They players know. always think that, though. The players are the worst critiques and worst evaluators of themselves. I, I remember covering a, uh, a Northern Illinois-Western Michigan game in 2006 with Garrett Wolf in Northern Illinois, like at their peak, won 42-7 in DeKalb, Illinois, frigid day. Western had Greg Jennings, had some good players. but And afterwards, 
you know, the players are like, ah, oh, we just, you know, we weren't, our intensity wasn't enough. They were coming up with all these sort of bullshit excuses. <laughs> and the head coaches said, you know, players hate admitting somebody's just bigger, faster, and stronger. Yeah. And they don't, they don't know how to see it. You know, I've covered teams where they think they have it coming in and they, and, and they don't. Now, I do think there is a connectedness to this group. I do think a lot of these guys have been part of winning and part of losing, and they know the difference, and they know, you know, why things went wrong last year and how to avoid that. And so I think there's there's great value in those that sort of sweat equity or learned experience. I'm going on the over your six and six. Okay. I, so yeah, yeah. I, I'll give you a, I'll give you a little extra juice. I already got a bet with Ben. What did we bet, Ben? Like a big cigar, I think, was our <laughs> bet just on the Washington game. He's convinced the Washington game, there's no shot. Like, you're crazy. I don't know, man. I've been watching football a long time. That East Coast, West Coast thing, I I believe in it. No, and if you want a reason to pick the over and, and think they're going to have a better season, so much of winning in college football comes down to getting 21-year-olds to focus for an entire week and be dialed in. And, and these guys had enough experiences last year. Like the Washington game, they all went out to Seattle. They all felt that. They'll be dialed in that week, no question. It's their first. But I think just as importantly, like the Minnesota game on the road, week after they play Michigan, lots of opportunities, regardless how the Michigan game goes, for like road game off the radar, Minnesota, late October. And yet they got booed for the first time in their lives at Spartan Stadium against Minnesota. Like they all remember that. They, they all remember how that felt. And I think that will help them focus in those games. So I think there are, there are moments from last year that will help in terms of the performance they give they give this year. Uh, we'll see. I'm optimistic and I'm excited. You know, it's the it's kind of like opening day for baseball. I have the Tigers at 100 wins and that lasts for like <laughs> six hours and then it goes out the window. Let's get us to the speed round and we'll get you out of here. I know it's a long drive for you. Ben, let's run it. All right, Mr. Graham, I don't know, whatever you feel like, 30 seconds-ish. You know, you can go as long as you want, I suppose. New media versus old media. So we put you, it's not, it's not you against Justin Thind, who's a buddy of mine. I don't know if you guys it's get actually a, not a bad angle. Thank you. Yeah, I did not choose that picture. So I, can we get your eyes open on the next one? So I'll have to tell Eric next time, can we get his eyes open in the, in the picture? But just the concept, you know, Draymond Green has declared, oh, we're part of the new media. You know, you're in these in these rooms, like with somebody like Justin Thind, who's, you know, like an engineer and kind of doing this on the side and you're a pros pro been doing this mm -hmm. and you're in the same room, not doing the same thing, different thing, but you're in the same room, got the notepad or whatever you got. It, my sense is there's a little bit of a resentment there from the old guard, not specific to the Michigan state beat, like industry wide. There's a little bit of a pushback. Draymond Green's even mentioned it. They don't like us new guys coming in. What's sort of your take on the dynamic there just generally? Yeah, it is new. I mean, th there are more and more, uh, you know, new media of different forms all the time. And you, you see it on the MSUB. I've never had never had an issue. Um, you know, like I get along with Justin well. And, oh, he's, uh, he's a great guy. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't I mean, they the job is different. And so you understand that. And there are times where I think people get frustrated because they run into a situation where, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. And this is not, this is specific to, to to Justin, but like the the uh, Rainer Saban column, right? Um, that you know, a lot of people are criticizing a lot of it. I saw Justin had a tweet, sort of, but like a lot of the new media, not just Justin, but people in his role, 
aren't even able to write that column. You know what I mean? Because that 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 would hurt their their brand, their sources, what they're doing. And so it, it is different. It is it is, there are differences, but I don't think they can't coexist. I don't think there should be resentment. Um, I think there is like I think what some people do has is great value and um, and especially in the college game because part of what drives a lot of things in the college game that it would be new media or whatever is a passion for that team that is and and they're going to work hard to you know find sources and do recruiting type stories that that maybe old media doesn't have interest in like I'll be honest if a 15 year old commits on July 15th and I'm at the lake I do not give a shit and I'm pissed <laughs> you know like I just don't care and yet somebody <laughs> You know, neither neither do I actually, but yeah. But, but there are people who do, yeah, and oh, that's that's many. a good thing. And there are fans who do, and they serve a fan base, and, I, and those things can totally coexist. I don't, um, but but I understand that there can there can be friction. I just I just don't necessarily feel it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I have like I'm a fan of so many people in both camps that I I'm kind of you know neutral on that. I just I'm a big fan of yours, big fan of Justin's. You know, I know. Not to pit you guys against each other, but you are new guard, old guard, kind of. Yeah, and, and there is an independence versus, you know, there's a, um, and it's not that, uh, I mean, different people have different alliances and different roles and different, but there is a, you know, there's Jim Comperoni who who makes his living doing this. I'm not saying he's necessarily new guard, but he wrote a piece about Harbaugh, I think it was, after the tunnel incident. And I remember thinking, I mean, it was, and it wasn't a bad column, but Jim Comperoni criticizing Jim Harbaugh is, is, is just predictable. It's like John U. Bacon criticizing Michigan State. You know, like there are certain things that just, uh, you know, so th- there are those things where I do think there's a value in the, the, the independence, so to speak, and, and not having, uh, but that doesn't mean there's, I, I don't see any friction, at least from, from my standpoint, I don't feel friction there. Um, and, uh, I don't have a problem with anybody who does it because people don't, you know, I have more problems with cameramen who get in my way in the NCAA tournament in the locker rooms <laughs> and are just like taking up space than, than anybody else. We'll move on. Great answer. A lot of people don't know you were actually on the 2013 Rose Bowl team. People don't realize that the off season. I want to ask you about that. Your summer workout with the 2013 team that would eventually go on to incredible things, win 13 games. What was that? Uh, what was that? <laughs> Put that picture. I I haven't even seen that picture yet. <laughs> I was in better shape then too. Was, yeah. Oh yeah, you and me both, man. The end of the athletic prime. Rose Bowl champion Graham Couch. So you went up there. Was it? I think it was two days with them. Or was it two days? Two yeah. two days. Because what happened was I went the first day and and I, uh, what I, they I think they sent me on a day that was going to be manageable because they're worried this guy's going to die. You know whatever, and. <laughs> And the first oh, day, are, and, and that's actually where the photos were taken all the first day, um, which the first day was strenuous, but it was a lot more technical work. And I remember at the end of it, it's like, I can't write a column off this. Like, this was not, <laughs> this was not, this was not hard for me. And I was in, in defense, I was playing a ton of full court basketball at the time. I was in good shape. Um, so I said, you've got to let me come back. And I said, when, you know, when's a day that would really push me? And they said, well, come Thursday. And that's the day that they run the stadium ramps, run the steps. And that was, I mean, that, I had, yeah, that was brutal. Um, I just, I can still hear Ken Manny's voice saying three more in terms of loops and just thinking like, like I remember coming down the concrete steps at Spartan Stadium 
thinking I was going to throw up and then also f- tumble forward into my own vomit. Like it was just, I just didn't <laughs> know how many more I could get through. And, but you know, I did that originally. The reason I wanted to do that, I did that when I covered Western Michigan. It was like six years earlier. And it changes the way the team looks at you. They, and I, they, they, they know you know what they go through in the off season. They have a respect for you that you stuck it out through the end of that workout. And with guys like Darquez Denard and a number of the players who were on, I mean, th- there was a, a different vibe and a different conversation that I was able to have that whole year, I thought, because of that. So it was worth doing. If I did it now, I would die. So I wouldn't try it again, <laughs> yeah. even though if I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would want at least a little time to prep for that one. But uh, I thought that was – I remembered that from the time and i'm like i gotta find what year was that was i was 2013? i was so nervous I, I remember i went out to do a piece i was in dekalb illinois doing a couple stories out and on mark montgomery like a couple days before and so i ran gassers on the northern illinois field like nobody's around the coaches can see me out of the eye they must have been wondering what this you know 30 <laughs> year old you know whatever dude is doing out there and I, but just to try to make sure that i was physically capable of getting through it oh you got through it you're here telling the tale now uh, speaking of tales, Mark D'Antonio's sudden retirement. That is something that has been speculated about. I don't know that we really have the perfect answer there. When he releases that statement on Twitter, he announces he's done. What was your reaction? Were you shocked, mildly surprised, not surprised? Where were you at? Yeah, I try and take myself back to that. I, you know, I wasn't stunned um, in the sense that I mean, it had been a, a rough 2019, and it, and I was getting, I was writing. It felt like every week I was writing the column, like, "What the hell are they doing here?" He's going to have to decide if, you know, he's going to have to sh- not only shake up the staff but roll up his sleeves and decide he wants to be in this for a while. And I remember writing a column at the end of that season about like he can't just like the roster is in a place where he can't just say, "I want to come back." If he comes back, he's got to. No, he's got to do it for three or four more years with a lot with high energy, and I think that was a big part of it. I think that as he got away from the season and the frustration of it, and and the just sort of doing it again. Um, I mean, my, the best joke is that he was paying attention to like cable news and 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 reports in China about COVID, and was like, ah, "I'm getting out of this. This doesn't, you know." But I, I don't think that was it. I don't think he knew COVID was coming. But um, and I know that they had there had been some talks with him. Uh, in the athletic department, just about the direction of things, how much longer he wanted to do it, his staff and things that needed to change. And I think it sort of all, I, I mean, I take him at his word that he was out recruiting a little bit and just realized as he was talking to kids that I don't, I don't have this in me. I don't, I won't be around when these guys are, are, are there. I don't. And so I, I do, I do think there was some of that. I think he just, he ran out of steam and he knew it. And I think that was the first time he knew it. And I think what the frustration for him is his latest 2019, and I'll never forget this, at Big Ten Media Days, I have never been more sure that he thought he had a squad that could win. Because if you remember 2018, you know, they had Lewerke had his arm off. And they were, you know, they were, they had no offense, literally. And there was like 7-7 against Michigan and maybe Ohio State deep in the third quarter because that defense was that good. And... I think he thought he had that kind of defense, and he thought the offense would be a lot better. He thought he had a team that could contend again. And I, you could just sense him. He was in a really good place at the beginning of 2019. And when it didn't unfold well, and really after that, um, 
that Ohio State second quarter where things went wrong, and then the Wisconsin game where it was a shutout. I, I, you know, it, it was just kind of a, a train wreck after that. And I think as he got away from it, um, and when you look at him now, he looks happy and healthy, like a man he, who made he's the He's like right younger decision. now. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah he's, his hair's like got a little more gray, but there's fewer like wrinkles and less wear in his face. The other thing is his wife wanted him out. So, oh. you know, I really think she was always worried about his health. And that was, you know, so, so if you don't have a spouse at home saying, no, nah, let's do, you know, if you're going home to, you know, anytime was good, you know, then, then that's, that's, you know, and I don't, I don't have any information that she was like demanding you stop, but he was, ever since the heart attack, she had been concerned and, and, um, that year was particularly, I think, hard on him, and he looked he looked the part. He looked, you're right, he looked old, much older then than he does now. Right. Aging like a president a little bit. I'm so happy for him. Just such a big fan of his, and he's the best one we've had. You know, you his wanna... legacy will get better and better as time we get further and further away from his tenure. Just I because agree. the other thing that happens is you just see how hard it is to do what yep. he did. Yeah. Well, that and again, in context, when he got there, it was absurd to think they'd even be in or, in it for the Rose Bowl. He was this close to going to two. Yeah. I mean, a hair yeah. away from going to two in three years. So, yeah, he's the man. He's a legend. Tom Izzo, speaking of legends, the Tom Izzo timeline, how many years left for Tom? It's a good question. Um, you know, the last time I spoke, I, I, I think it could be you know, only like three, you know, something like that. I, I'm torn on this. There's part of me that thinks he'll just keep going and he'll – die on the court he says he won't but you know the longer he goes sometimes i think the longer he'll coach i don't know if he knows what else he'll do i think he still feels good there are parts of the college game that i think aren't as fun like he's been sort of able to thread this needle right now where you get a high big time recruiting class all your guys stay you've got enough nil money to keep people keep people happy um but there could become a point where everything that's sort of making it a pain in the ass for every other coach makes it no no fun anymore and he does decide to walk away and and um you know I if I had to guess I would say three more years but you know I think um I think as long as he thinks he has a team that has a chance to win it too uh, you know he, it's going to be hard for him I what else would he do I mean that's the thing about him he's not you know he's not somebody I think who um is going to retire easily like D'Antonio. I think he'll, he'll struggle with just not doing it. That second national title in particular, uh, the absence of it. If he gets that. That made thing. But I do wonder if, if he doesn't then think, like say they get it this year. Say yeah. that happens. Say it's the dream season for Michigan State basketball and they win a national title this year. And then you look at the team after that, which all of a sudden looks pretty dang intriguing. Well, why not three? You know, I can in his head. I, you know, two would be. You know, he would that, go there, yeah. right? And so I, you know, I, I'll believe it when when I see it that he's actually done. But I also think I won't see it coming. Unlike D'Antonio, a little bit. Like I didn't expect D'Antonio to retire when he did. I thought once they got to February, he's going to do another year, like most coaches do. But I think Izzo will truly catch catch us off guard, and uh, and it'll happen at the end of a year, and uh, he'll just decide. What makes you say that? Well, I know he doesn't want to do the the rocking chair tour stuff. So he he's doesn't not, want to do the farewell he, he tour. Does, he desperately doesn't want that. And um, yeah, I 
because I think I won't see it different than I do now. Maybe he'll look tired and worn some year, and you'll go, boy, this looks like it might be it. And maybe if he kept coaching five, six more years, that would happen. But um, I, I think he'll be tired, and I won't see it. I think that's just, just because I've seen all states of him where he looks frazzled and done, and this is, this is what he does. And um, I think he likes his role at the school. I think he likes coaching still. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just I just know sort of that blind spot with him. I don't think I will I will be able to see it. I, I tend to agree with you. Yeah, I, I was just kind of curious for your take on it. I don't think he's going to have this kind of long, drawn-out. The D'Antonio retirement stuff, that was a conversation at the end of 2019. Like, he looks like he might want to get out of here. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it, it made sense for him to go. And then he didn't yeah. go. Right. And, yeah, it was – the timing of his retirement, you know, didn't help. Didn't help Tucker. Didn't help anybody. But, uh, but it also helped in the sense if he had stuck around and COVID had hit, I'm not sure that goes well for Michigan State either. Where 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 they were at that point. And I'm at a point for whatever issue you had with the timing with Mark D'Antonio, I I prefer to just remember him fondly. Sure. I mean, there's so much good. It's like no, I'm not going to focus on that. Maybe I'm a hypocrite for that. I I was mad at the time. I don't even like want to think about that. Well, and anymore. how many coaches really know when to go out and go out well? It's just a yeah. hard thing to do when you've it's been true. at the top of your game. And and I think the hard thing for D'Antonio was they felt they were really close to something even beyond. And the 2016 class and everything that was happening in Michigan State was just wound up being, you know, it didn't didn't happen. And then 2019, I think he did think he had a squad. I mean, I think the if you look at the defenses those last couple of years, I mean, that was those were elite defenses for a while, even in that into 19. I mean, you go to that Ohio State game on the road, quarter and a half. I know they turned it over a couple of times. They were the last, that was the last time MSU went toe-to-toe with Ohio State for a little while, physically. And and then it fell apart. But um, I, I I think it took him a while to realize, okay, I, I, I don't have the roster to do this. And I think that's the other thing. He, he probably knew this was going to be, this was going to be a little rough. It seemed to be the the end there, but a glorious run it was. Two more quickly. They're kind of the same yin and yang. Most fun MSU athlete to cover in your career. Just that you enjoyed him. Derek Nix. I had to get Derek Nix in the locker room because you never knew what he was going to say. It was usually going to be fun. Sometimes it was the, to the detriment of him and his team. I mean, I, I you know his senior year when they needed him to be a leader. There were a couple times, a couple of tough columns they wrote on him just because he, he really didn't. I don't think understood what it meant and what was, you know, to to, to do that. But I mean, he was, he, he wasn't scared to say anything, and he was always entertaining. He had a great sense of comedic timing, and uh, so yeah. I mean, it was one of my favorite people to talk to in the locker room, and, and yeah, he's just. I mean, I, I would I would say it's him. I've, there have been a number of guys who have been really good to talk to but just in terms of like pure entertaining entertainment value is Derek Nix R.I.P. to the competition right isn't that's his his famous quote last one and you know maybe a little bit of a sour note but was there one that was difficult for you not maybe not least favorite but just a difficult Michigan State athlete to reach where they didn't really want to communicate with the media and you had a hard time getting to them it's a good question. Uh, I mean, there have been guys who have not been great quotes. I mean, I, you know, I, like Deontay Davis was a, a, a struggle, and um, 
but he wasn't it wasn't for his lack of willingness to to chat with you there have been there have been guys who have been less um excited to do it I'm trying to think who would be a really good example of somebody who was just a little um but it's not like the tigers clubhouse or anything you're not dealing with like pudge rodriguez or anything i mean they're they're, they're usually um pretty decent decent deontay davis at, at the end i'll never forget this i mean i talked to him several times at michigan state had a couple good one-on-ones that was sort of pulling teeth but we get somewhere and then i he is in the same draft as denzel valentine so I'm in New York doing this behind-the-scenes thing with Denzel. And and I go to a couple things on him as well. And I wrote a column just about, and, and, and especially when he slid into the second round, just sort of the contrast between the two of them. And his people hated it. He didn't like it. But then I really wanted to do a piece when he was in Memphis because he, on him and what, what life was like. So they were in Indiana, and I went down there. And right away he's like um, – was uh, not Paul Gasol. It was who's Paul Gasol's brother and Mark Marcusall. Yeah, it's Marcusall and Deontay Davis playing like children on the other end of the court. Like it looked like fun. Like it was it was really cool. And and Vince Carter had taken him under his wing and and all these sort of things were really good. But I walk in there, and the Memphis PR people are phenomenal. The media relations folks, and they tell Deontay, uh, you know, there's somebody here to see you. And he's sitting on this back bench and he looks around and he sees me, and his head just drops. <laughs> like, uh, and it was just one of those moments. Or, and we wound up, I mean, in, back then they had so much access for the NBA. We talked for 20 minutes then. We talked after pregame shoot around. We talked postgame. He had to spend like a good hour with me. But that, I'll never forget that head drop of like he just wanted nothing to do with me in that moment. And, uh, and there have been a few postgames where guys just would rather not deal with you. But I think that's where building relationships matters. And uh, – you know, some people think like Tyson Walker is a tough, tough interview. I don't think Tyson Walker is that tough interview. There, t- he doesn't like being asked the same question repeatedly. But if you get to him one on one and you ask and you talk to people like humans, and, and instead of just this immediate question about the game, um, you, you, you'll get something. I've gotten some really thoughtful conversations out of him. I love Tyson. I mean, Tyson's been here twice. He is blunt and does not suffer any fools. Like, no. I haven't had the issue, you know, because I wasn't talking to him, hey, what happened in that game? Because I haven't been in that capacity. But you can tell, like, he doesn't have any time for bullshit, which yeah. I, I respect that, though. I don't have a problem with that. No, and you sort of learn the locker room. You learn which guys, like, get Tyson right away. Because if four other people have talked to him, he's tired. He doesn't have it. But one of the things that really helped, and this is why you travel on the beat, and, you know, I was the only guy in Portland last year for the PA, PK85. And so every interview out there was one-on-one, including with, with – so they see you all the way out in Portland, you know, and, and then you're able to have these, like, more personal conversations. And those are relationships that sort of get built. And then when you're in a locker room, even if they're tired of that moment or they've suffered a bad loss, they, there's a connection. and you know, the, the, they'll, they'll handle it in that moment. Um, but yeah, there's, um, I'm trying to think if there's somebody who really, I, one of my favorite things about Xavier Tillman was that you always felt really dumb asking him a question because the way his eyes worked, he was thinking what he was going to say and he gave incredible thoughtful answers, but his eyes would go back and forth and you'd start to lose confidence in your own question. <laughs> and and uh, that, that, that always sticks out, but he was, he was fantastic. His, 
as well. And some guys have learned it. Like, I really believe what MSU does in basketball is, is helpful for those guys in terms of the openness, how many interviews they have to do. I, I think Izzo does too, the accountability. And some of those guys have gotten a lot better. Denzel Valentine was not great as a junior for a while. And it was Joe Rex wrote at some point. I mean, it was his first year kind of as the man. And, and they weren't having a fun year. It was early in that 2014-15 year. And Joe Rex wrote in the locker room just said, hey, man, you got to give us more. Like We're going to be here every time. Like, And Denzel, to his credit, kind of got it. And he got a lot better the rest of that year. And, and then he was terrific the next year. Um, but it, sometimes it takes a minute for those guys. Yeah, I mean, they are legal adults, but still kids. and they're humans, yeah. yeah. And, and, they're, and, and they're dealing with you – know, I always try to remember when I go in there, and I'm in a great spot. I don't need to talk to you. Like sometimes if you're, if you're a beat writer and this is the story, you, you kind of need to talk to somebody. If, you, if you're in a grumpy mood, if you're rude to me, whatever, I don't, I don't, I don't need to talk to you. Or if you, know, if you just look like, I'd rather have the great conversation with anybody that leads to a column than necessarily the guy who you know, scored 20 points in that, in that game that everybody's talking to. And uh, I think that's, um, but that's, that's the benefit of my role that not everybody, not everybody has. And a great conversation that leads to a column, which leads to a Mike Valenti rant. Yeah, something the like top that. top-rated yeah, yeah, show yeah, yeah. in the history of Detroit sports market. Man, Graham Couch, I don't know if you realized what night you agreed to come and the timing you know, of it, the fact that it was the night before the opener. But I, I immediately said yes and, like, you know, turned my phone off so you couldn't back out. But <laughs> I appreciate you coming here, man. I know it's a drive for you. Long day ahead of you, you know, tomorrow. So, you know. Coming at all is impressive and appreciated, but in this time and this backdrop of the season, really appreciate you, man. Thank you. I uh, enjoyed the interview. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks for having me. I uh, love to have you back. Graham Couch, Lansing State Journal, awesome columnist, and he'll be down there covering that big opener tomorrow against Central Michigan. I'm excited. I will talk myself into 12 and 0 by the uh, second Miller <laughs> White at the tailgate in the parking lot tomorrow. Ben is going to the game with me tomorrow. We have like six stops to make. We're looking forward to it. We're running through our itinerary, so we're going to do that. Eric, boxers on your couch, man. Appreciate you. Love you. Screw Avenue Show. Graham Couch, we'll see you next time. Thanks.